Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Once again, looking at John's Gospel, as we've been doing for the last couple of months, we come to the end of chapter 3 this morning. I'll be reading verses 22 through 36. This is God's holy and errant word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I came across an article, a column, this past week written by a psychiatrist named Keith Ablow. And Dr. Ablow, um, in that column, is talking about social media. And I use social media, and almost everybody uses social media. And so I was curious to see what his comments were. The one phrase that jumped out at me in the first paragraph that drew me in He said he was concerned about what he called the toxic psychological impact of media and technology, especially upon our youth. And in the article, he calls social media websites like Facebook and Twitter, Pinterest, those kinds of websites. And also he includes later on in the article video games. He calls these things the psychological drugs of the 21st century. And he says it's resulted, here's his conclusion, it's resulted in a dramatic rise of narcissism in our culture. Now, again, I think when you think of drugs, drugs are good things when they're used in the right way and used in in right quantities. And I think the same can be true for what he says about social media sites and video games. Used in the right way, used in moderation, they can be a good thing, an enjoyable thing. But the problem is, so much of our culture, so many of us, abuse them. Use them in such a way that they are damaging to us. 
As Dr. Ablow says in Facebook, we create an online identity that is all about glorifying how we look, what our skills are, our sense of humor, our wisdom, our interests. We relish how many friends we have. On Twitter, we make ourselves look wise or funny with pithy comments, and we revel about how many followers we have. In video games, we can be rock stars, we can lead armies to conquer nations, we can win NASCAR races, playoff games, and gold medals. In his conclusion, the psychiatrist says, false pride can never be sustained. The bubble of narcissism is always at risk of bursting. And when reality comes crashing in, we have psychological breakdowns to one degree or another. And we show ourselves to be addicts desperately seeking another hit to make us feel special or significant or cool. You see, it's a deep internal drive in each one of us because we were created by an eternal God in his image. We are not content just to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and live out our daily existence. We desperately want to have significance to our lives. We want to leave our mark. We want to be remembered. But in the end, that deep inner desire to glorify ourselves and to be remembered is a losing game. I don't know how many times you've seen it, but it seems like every time when you're watching a movie or watching a television show and somebody dies, if they show the aftermath of the death, they'll show people comforting one another. And I don't know if this is accurate or not, but it seems to me about 19 times out of 20, when you hear how they comfort one another, they they say something that's amazingly consistent. It sounds something like this. As long as we remember them, they will still be alive. Every time I hear that, I think, what a pathetic hope. If that's how we comfort one another in the face of death, that somehow somebody is going to remember us, and that's going to keep us alive, or mean that our life was somehow significant. Really, isn't that why we come here to worship God? To have a bucket of cold water thrown in our face to to realize what reality is. Listen to these words from God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 tells us, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. A generation goes and a generation comes. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. All is vanity and striving after the wind. Or Isaiah 40. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. We will not be remembered when we're gone. Of the six billion people alive on earth today, only a handful are going to make it into the history books that future generations will read. We will be forgotten. 
Life will go on. The world will close in around the hole that we've left. In this passage that I just read to you from the end of John chapter 3, we see John the Baptist dealing with the fact that he was in the process at this point in his ministry, in spite of his incredible popularity up until this point, he is about to become yesterday's news. We actually learn in this passage something that we only learn here in John 3 that the other Gospels don't tell us, is that there was a brief period where the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus overlapped. Remember, John said, I am the forerunner. I am here to announce the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the king. And he stood before his own disciples and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But his ministry didn't end immediately. And in this passage, we see that if you know the geography of Judea, you know that what John has done is he's moved from where he was, as we studied back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's moved a bit north, and he's left the area closer to Jerusalem to Jesus in his ministry. But John is still out in the wilderness. Now it says he's on the western side of the Jordan instead of being on the eastern side of the Jordan. But he's still in the wilderness and he's preaching his, his message of repentance and he's still baptizing those who come to hear him and those who believe and repent. But it says here that Jesus was also baptizing where he was a little to the south. Now, if you flip over to chapter 5 real quick, you'll see in the first couple of verses, I'm sorry, chapter 4, you'll see in the first couple of verses, it says that Jesus was actually baptizing more disciples than John at that point, but it makes the point that it was actually Jesus' disciples doing the baptism, not Jesus himself. In verse 25, going back to chapter 3, in verse 25, it says there was a debate that came up. A discussion among the disciples of John who were still sitting under John's teaching and following after John. Those who were John's disciples, a debate broke out with a Jew. We don't know who the Jew was. We don't know why this particular Jew. And it says that the debate was about purification rites. And we don't know what the debate was. It's kind of interesting. John refers to it, but it doesn't really matter what the debate was about because out of that discussion about cleansing rituals and purification, out of that discussion, somehow there must have been a reference to the fact that all of these disciples, and many of them former disciples of John the Baptist, were going to Jesus and were following him now. And that Jesus was baptizing more than John the Baptist. He was becoming more prominent in his ministry. And so these disciples of John come back to John the Baptist and they complain. They're indignant. They resent Jesus' growing popularity, especially at the cost of John's ministry. John's ministry was dying out. It was diminishing. They'd even seen their friends, as we saw back in chapter 1, Andrew and John, had, like many others, had left John to follow Jesus. Do you notice how they don't even give Jesus, they're so resentful, they don't even give Jesus the the honor of speaking his name. They say to John the Baptist, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, you were loyal to him, you bore witness to him, and now he's stealing all your disciples. He's becoming bigger than you are. 
Have you ever experienced ministry envy? Did you ever see another believer doing something for the Lord and find yourself jealous? Maybe because they taught a class really well or led a Bible study well. Maybe because they sang beautifully in a piece of special music. Maybe you're jealous of another church in town that's making a bigger impact than your church. Maybe growing faster than your church. You ever feel yourself being jealous of other ministries or ministers? We pastors are particularly prone to this. Every time I go to Presbytery, I have to kind of specially prepare myself because when you go there and find yourself among other pastors, you're always comparing yourself because everybody else is always comparing you to how big your church is, how fast it's growing, how many ministries you have, what kind of things are going on. And it's a continual struggle to not give in to the sin of jealousy, to not feel like you don't measure up because somebody is doing ministry better. And this is the kind of thing that John's disciples were going through. And you realize where we are, we're not even talking about the infancy of the church yet. Because the church is born on the day of Pentecost. We're talking about the church that's still in the womb. And the church is already in danger of a split. Very easily at this point, you could have had the Johnites or the disciples of John going off into the wilderness in one direction and those who are following Jesus going another direction. Do you know what saved the church while it's still in the womb from experiencing its first split? The humility of John the Baptist. That's what saved the church. Here's a life verse for all of us. John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. Your life is not about establishing an earthly identity. Your life is not about making your mark on this fallen world. Your life is not about being remembered. Your life is about exalting Jesus Christ. That's where you will find your satisfaction. That's where you will find your purpose. How do we lose ourselves by finding ourselves in Christ? Well, as John departs the scene, he teaches us by his words and example what our lives should really all be about. I think the first point that John makes in this passage is that we need to find our calling in Christ and be content in it. We need to find our calling in Christ and be content in it. Look at verses 27 and 28. John the Baptist says to his disciples, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says basically to his disciples, I am what I am, I'm where I am, by the grace of God and by the sovereign will of God. He has called me, he has placed me, and all I need to do is be faithful to that calling. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the gifts that are given to us. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the talents and skills that we have. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the resources that he places under our responsibility. Jesus Christ is the Lord of our circumstances. 
you ever wonder what it would be like to eavesdrop on your own funeral? I know you've done it before. Either sitting in a funeral or somewhere, it just crossed your mind. I wonder what people would say at my funeral. We have a strong desire to be remembered and honored in this world. And we're taught from a very young age that we are masters of our own destiny. That we need to make something of ourselves. I think that's especially true in a, in a community, in a culture like this one that's dominated by academia. It's all about how you're going to make your mark on the world and how you're going to be remembered. But John says, no, it's all about your calling. Being faithful to what you were called to do. No matter how glorious that may appear in the eyes of the world or how shameful it might appear in the eyes of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. There is such a thing as godly ambition. And we are called to work hard and to strive and to take risks. But don't ever forget that the goal of that godly ambition and risk-taking is the exaltation of Christ and not the exaltation of you. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. He said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He goes on to say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, he says, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. John the Baptist, Paul the Apostle, we're talking about people in the kingdom of God that even from, from earthly recognition were great, great men. But yet, what was important to them was embracing the calling that gave, God gave them and using that calling to exalt Christ, to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. I don't know what your calling is. I don't know whether it's, it's teaching or in the medical profession or in, in being a student or being a homemaker. Doesn't matter what your calling is. The purpose of that calling is to exalt Christ. Exalt Christ by being faithful. Exalt Christ by being humble. Exalt Christ by sharing Christ in the way that you speak, the way that you live, the way that you treat other people. So the first step is to find your calling in Christ and be content in it. The second step is to find your joy in leading others to Christ. Find your joy in leading others to Christ. Look at verse 29. In that verse, John draws upon a cultural tradition in in marriage. And he uses it as, as an illustration of what his life is all about. He talks about being the friend of the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom is very much like what we would consider in our own weddings to be the best man. But the friend of the bridegroom sometimes had a bigger responsibility in the first century. He was really responsible for all the arrangements of the wedding. And it was his primary job on the day of the wedding was to make sure that the bride was fully prepared dressed and beautified and fully prepared, that the groom was fully dressed and prepared, and to make sure that when the friends of 
the groom, the bridegroom, went across town to get the bride where she was in her home and to lead her in procession, his whole job was to make sure that that bride, safely and fully prepared, arrived at the door of the bridegroom's house, ready to be married. And at the moment when the marriage is consummated and completed, then the friend of the bridegroom let out a shout of joy and he knew that his job was complete. All of his calling, all of his responsibility was to bring the bridegroom and the bride together. And his greatest joy was seeing that relationship totally fulfilled. John the Baptist is saying to his disciples, that's what our lives are all about. That's where John the Baptist found his deepest joy. He understood that his disciples were the beginnings of the church. And the church did not belong to John the Baptist. He did not want his name on the church. He says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The church belongs to Christ. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is not the Sessions church. This is not the PCA's church. This is the bride of Christ. It belongs to him. Paul saw ministry in much the same way. I love this verse from the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul talking to this Corinthian church, which was a church, as you think of it being the bride of Christ, it was not nearly ready to meet the bridegroom yet. It was a church with all kinds of problems. But he says at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter, in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see, Paul got it the way that John the Baptist got it. That his role, whatever role in ministry any of us have, the role is to bring disciples to Christ, to bring the bride to Christ. And our greatest joy is to see others find him and grow in him and become like him. It's what John, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, says in his third epistle, this is third John, beginning in verse 3. He's talking to his beloved brother Gaius, and he says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now it's interesting, he calls them my children because he says... It's through his preaching of the gospel, through his disciple-making, that Gaius and others like him have come to know Christ and have come to find their life in Christ. And he says, I have no greater joy than to know that you are walking with Christ, that you're in that relationship. Do you know that joy? That's the joy of ministry. Of using your calling, using your place in life, using your resources, using your relationships to help bring other people to know Christ and to draw them closer to Christ. There is no greater joy than that. Certainly you're not going to get it from 
social media. You're certainly not going to get it from video games. You're not even going to get it from your family. You're not going to get it from your career. All these other things in life, nothing is going to give you that great of a joy as the joy of bringing people to Christ and helping people to walk in the ways of Christ, to draw closer to him. There is no more intense joy. And then thirdly, I think the third message that John the Baptist gives us about making our mark, we need to make our legacy the gospel message. When you think about all the things that you can leave in this world, the most important thing that you leave behind you as you take your trek through this life is the message of the gospel. You know, Jesus over in chapter 5, just skip over a couple chapters for a moment, chapter 5, he talks about this eclipse of the ministry of John the Baptist. Verse 35, Jesus says about John the Baptist, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. John was a momentary light in this world. And once his light was extinguished, this world would forget him. But the light that Christ came was much greater. The revelation of God and his will and the way of salvation in Christ was so much greater than what John the Baptist brought. Basically, as you go back to chapter 3 and you look at those last few verses from verse 31 to verse 35, John is essentially saying to his disciples, listen, I'm just a prophet. I'm just a messenger boy. I'm just the UPS man. I'm just the mailman. I'm just bringing you the message from God. He says, I'm of earth. I'm a sinner saved by grace, just like you are. Jesus is from above. He has come from the very throne room of heaven. He is God the Son. And John goes on in verse 33 to say, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. If you accept what Jesus tells you, you believe it, then you are setting your seal. You are agreeing with God. Matter of fact, over in 1 John chapter 5, let me read to you those words of the Apostle John. Verses 10 through 12, John says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus brings the full light of heaven to earth. The full revelation that we need to know about who God is, about his will for our lives, and most importantly, about how we can be reconciled to him. And that brings us to the message. Do you believe God's message or do you call God a liar? Verse 36 is the message. These are the last recorded words we have of John the Baptist. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Your calling, no matter how different it might look in terms of your career, your geographic location, your skills, whatever your calling looks like, the point of it all is to leave behind you as a legacy the message of the gospel. 
You don't want people to be remembering you. You want people to remember what you were about. The message that drove your life. Life is in Jesus Christ. Receive Him or remain under the wrath of God eternally. You know, when Paul was in prison in Rome, it's interesting, and the book of Philippians is all about joy, but he wrote it while he was in prison, maybe even facing death. He wasn't sure if death might be just around the corner. Suffering, limited, not able to minister. But in first, in Philippians chapter 1, he talks about how since he was shut away in prison and off the streets, others, a part of the visible church, others were out there. They had taken advantage of that opportunity to go out and preach. Some of them, he says, out of a desire to support him, to pick up the mantle, to pick up the torch and keep preaching the gospel. But others out of rivalry, he says. But listen to how he talks about it. He says in, in verse 15 of Philippians 1, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my pun- imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul didn't care if he ended up dying in a stinking dungeon. Paul didn't care if people were mocking him. He didn't care if people forgot him. All that mattered is that Christ was being preached, even if it was being done for the wrong motivation. Let God judge the heart as long as Christ, the biblical Christ, not just any Christ, but the Christ of Scripture, the Christ who is the eternal Son of God, come to earth. Christ crucified and risen from the dead. As long as Christ is proclaimed, his legacy is complete. His mark on the earth has been made. Whoever has the Son has life. We will not be remembered on this earth. We will not leave a lasting mark and impression. The mark that we make, the reward that we gain, is in heaven. We must embrace our calling, no matter how glorious or inglorious it might be in the eyes of the world. We must find our joy in exalting Christ and bringing others to know him better. And we must leave our legacy of sharing his gospel message with others. It's not about us. It's about him. We are called to die to self and live to Christ. One of the most devout believers I've ever known was my mother. My mother was an incredibly intelligent woman, but she was prevented from going to college. So she had no college education. She ended up being a homemaker almost through her entire life. She dreamed one day her career aspiration was to open a beauty shop. And I remember when I was a teenager, she got really excited about it but then found out that our house didn't meet the local township code requirements, and so her dream was dashed. She never got to open her beauty shop. But she loved the Lord. She raised six kids 
And all six of her children are now serving the Lord faithfully. She provided for me abundantly. She taught me. She prayed for me every day. People don't remember my mother much anymore. Those of us in the immediate family, of course, think of her often. She certainly is not remembered by the world beyond our family. But every sermon I preach, every class I teach, every person I counsel, every disciple I make, her legacy in heaven and her reward in heaven grows greater. That's what our lives are about. That's what's important. That's how we make our mark. Galatians 2, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about him. It's not about us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for pulling us out of the rat race of this world. Thank you that we do not compete, we're not rivals with anybody in the world, let alone with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the calling you've placed upon us. Thank you for the joy of fulfilling that calling. And thank you for entrusting us with the gospel message. May we be faithful and taking it to those who need to hear it. Our treasure is in heaven, and it's our joy to exalt Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.